everyone that's missing either has coronavirus or they're avoiding it, <laughs> or they're out buying toilet paper and water and hand sanitizer. I saw on the internet that you're supposed to avoid people of Asian descent. Do you know what kind of predicament that puts me in? <laughs> so I'm gonna have Shandy and the kids move out. <laughs> I'm not getting that virus, man. <laughs> so, well, anyway. <laughs> so, but you guys are well, right? Amen. So I remember, um, you remember the swine flu scare? Uh, so Isaac and I both got it and were tested for it. And I remember thinking, uh, I will take this over influenza any day. Because it was like, oh, I just feel yucky, you know, feel bad. But when I've had influenza, I wanted to die. And uh, so, and that's, I think that's what we're seeing with this coronavirus as well, that for the average person it's, it's just kind of a bummer. But anyway, let's, let's get into more important things. Amen? Okay. Well, let's uh, review quickly, and then we'll uh, eventually get into our text. Fair enough? All right. So last week, from verse 3, we, we were considering the hostility uh, Jesus faced from sinners. Okay. Uh, and we, we considered that in light of who he is in reality. Uh, he wasn't your average person uh, enduring your average suffering and mistreatment. He is the high king of heaven who never sinned but suffered for the sins of others, for the crimes uh, we committed against him. Um, this was meant uh, within the context uh, with the audience that the author was uh, speaking uh, to give them perspective to give them perspective, uh, because they had not yet suffered uh, even nearly to the degree that Christ did, and they were discouraged by what they were facing. And so the point of the author was, if Jesus was able to look past his suffering to the joy that was beyond the cross, he's saying, you can do the same, especially since your suffering is mild in comparison. No, we love it when people do that. You tell about this, this thing that you've endured and they just totally one-up you. <laughs> and, uh, and typically we think that that's not okay, but uh, the author made full use of it when it came to Christ and his example. Yeah, so, but then in verse five, the author says that they had forgotten and a central truth regarding the suffering we face as Christians that he says that it is the Lord's chastening. The persecution uh, was not the Lord's doing, but the chastening uh, or the chasing effect from suffering is the Lord's doing. Okay? And this I think that we need to explore a bit more. Let's uh, look again at the, the passages and um, we'll consider suffering some more. So if you're able, please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading verse five through eight out of the New King James Version. 
Uh, depending on which version you have, uh, the first line is either uh, a statement or it's a question. Uh, both are appropriate. Um, how we translate it is um, a debate. I'll leave to the translators. The author says, well, first, before that, he says that, uh, just remember, you have not suffered to the point of bloodshed as the Lord did. And here he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Um, We certainly do not want to be illegitimate. And at the same time, we don't really want to suffer. But there's suffering for us, and it's necessary. And we want to know about it, Lord. We want to know what it's all about and uh, what the result is, the fruit. And, And so I pray that as we look more at suffering, that you would not just inform us, but you would encourage us and that you would prepare us. So by your spirit, Lord, we, we just, we need you to do that. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. All the people that are missing today are gonna miss out on suffering. <laughs> so in the context, the author was saying that the Lord was chastening them by means of persecution. Okay. The Lord is chastening them by means of persecution. In this particular instance, the Lord was not the cause of their suffering or uh, the source of their suffering, but the Lord was using their suffering for their benefit. How many of you guys see suffering as beneficial? With your theological mind, you go, yeah. <laughs> but your practical mind is thinking there's no benefit to suffering. But here, as we've been getting into, the benefit is the perfecting of our faith, which we've said is the scope of Hebrews 12. Yeah, the perfecting of the saint. Persecution and suffering in general are some of the means by which God uses to perfect his people, just as he used it for perfecting Christ. Perfecting Christ, okay? Uh, Suffering is definitely the most uncomfortable and miserable means used by God, but historically, biblically, it is the most effective. It's how we, it's, the, it's, it's, it's fast tracking. It gets you on course super fast, and it gets you toward perfection more efficiently, okay? That's just the reality. Uh, A.W. Tozer said that God can hardly use a man until he wounds him deeply. I believe that's true. The greatest men in scripture were those that suffered the most. Okay? The guys 
and people in scripture that we love the most are the ones that hurt the most. It's true. Joseph comes to mind, you know, when you read uh, Psalm 105, when the psalmist is looking back uh, by the Spirit at all of the stuff that happened, he basically says that God destroyed Joseph's world, apart from which he could not accomplish what he desired. Joseph was mistreated, he was forsaken, he was sold as a slave, he was wounded by his captors, he was dragged to a foreign land, sold again into servitude, falsely accused of sexual assault, uh, wrongfully imprisoned and forgotten there to rot. And Psalm 105 says, all so that God could refine him and shape him for his own purposes, which was the salvation of countless people and the preservation of his chosen people. Okay, yeah. And don't even get me started on Job. Talk about one-upping people. <laughs> Nobody dared share their story around Job. Oh, I stubbed my toe. <laughs> David was anointed as king. He was promised the throne, but for more than a decade he was conspired against. Assassination attempts were made. He was hunted as a fugitive. He was homeless, betrayed, falsely accused, and his wife was given to another man also that God could make him the great king. Yeah. Daniel and his friends, they watched their family and friends be butchered without mercy. Their temple and holy city burned before them. They were taken captive. Isaiah says they were emasculated and then dragged to Babylon as slaves and then given blasphemous names. Also that God could use them to influence kings and kingdoms and so that Daniel could prophesy of the everlasting kingdom of Christ. How many of you guys just adore Daniel? Yeah. A man of great suffering. Yeah. And instead of being embittered against the Lord for all that they endured, um, all of these men loved God deeply and, and worshipped him alone. They didn't, they didn't push him away from God, but drew them closer. And so in so many ways, suffering for the believer is necessary. It's comforting. It's comforting. It and it's fruitful, which chapter 12 will reveal in the following verses, uh, just not so much today. <laughs> but why would God use suffering to those ends? Well, for the child of God, for the child of God, suffering keeps our eyes on him, okay? It keeps our dependence on him. It keeps us from becoming content with this world and the things in it. Yeah, it's true. It helps us look forward to the world to come where Christ rules supreme, where the psalmist says there is joy and pleasures forevermore, where there's no more tears, no more suffering, because by the time he's done making you suffer here, you'll be perfected in his presence. Suffering will no longer be needed. That's Psalm 116, or Psalm 1611. You know, God, he just doesn't want us to get too cozy with this place. He doesn't want us too cozy here. It's not our home. Like Abraham, we're pilgrims, literally. We are resident aliens. Our citizenship is located wherever Christ resides, and that's not here, not yet. And so with Abraham, we're looking for a homeland, 
a heavenly country, as it says in Hebrews 11, 14 through 15. So for the child of God, earthly suffering, both physically, financially, socially, emotionally, suffering is the best method for directing our hearts to heaven and away from this, this broken place. Okay. Last week, we briefly explored the necessity of suffering and how it perfects us toward God and toward man. I, I would like to explore that a bit more before we get into the exposition of our text, uh, hopefully to give a little bit broader context or foundation for Christian suffering. Okay? I think I might have been a little too hasty to just go into it last week. So I want to provide a little more biblical background on suffering. So let's do that. In Western civilization, we've, we've done our best to relieve suffering, and rightfully so. Amen? Yeah. Being created in the image of God, we look on the plight of humanity, uh, having the love of God in us, we're compelled to relieve suffering. It's in us. It's in us. Okay. But by the normalization of comfort and prosperity, you know, cushioning ourselves, we have a greater aversion to suffering and less endurance in it. Less endurance in it. How many of you guys have been to a third world country that's just ravished with suffering? How quickly did you realize how much endurance they have versus your own? When I was in Africa, I just, it dawned on me that these people are just used to being hungry. Have you ever seen me when I'm hungry? <laughs> yeah. As we experience less and less suffering, the more we feel entitled to more and more comfort, to the point where any real degree of suffering brings us to our knees, reduces us to whimpering, and a hopeless sense of defeat, which is not becoming of Christ's people. It really is not. And quite often we shake our fist at God, who's probably not the immediate source of our suffering, but simply the one using our suffering for our own good and for his glory. And shaking our fist at God is not a healthy response to suffering, and it's certainly not a, a biblical perspective on the matter. Okay? As people of the scriptures who call Jesus Lord and appeal to his wisdom, we need to see things from his perspective and submit to his purposes. It's important to recognize that God has appointed suffering for his people, for you and for me, just as he did for Jesus. It's appointed. If suffering was essential to the perfecting of Christ for the purposes of God, guess what you get to participate in? Yeah. Peter said this to a group of persecuted Christians. He said, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. How would you like that verse to be omitted? First Peter 2, 20 through 21, so we've all been called by God to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. How? By patiently suffering for doing what is good. 
for patiently suffering for your loyalty, for your fidelity to God. You've been appointed to that. Called to suffer because of obedience, just as Jesus suffered because of his obedience to the Father. Paul said that whoever desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. You guys, the ultimate good is godliness, is Christ-likeness for which Paul says you will suffer, for which you will suffer. When, when I consider the moral decline in our culture, uh, mind you, the comprehensive sex ed package passed legislation, it will be introduced to all children in public schools. When I consider the, that kind of decline, depravity in our culture and its hostility toward everything that is virtuous, I can't think of a more controversial voice than the voice of Jesus. It took him three and a half years to crucify him in Israel. How long do you think it would take him to crucify him today? <laughs> and if you speak as the oracle of God, as Peter says that you ought, you'll find yourself in a heap of trouble. But how much fun would that be? <laughs> There's nothing quite like sanctioned rebellion, but it would come at a cost, a cost called suffering. Paul told the Philippians, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. Paul says that suffering is granted, that literally it's the free gift of God on Christ's behalf. How should you understand suffering? The free gift of God, it's granted. It's his gift. It may be meant as a curse from men, but it's the gift of God. It's unpleasant, but it's good because of what God can accomplish in us through suffering. When Paul received word that the Christians in Thessalonica were being persecuted, he sent Timothy back to establish them and encourage them concerning their faith so that none of them would be shaken by their afflictions for they themselves knew that they were appointed to suffering. For in fact, Paul told them beforehand when he was with them that they would suffer tribulation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 through 4. Paul taught them that suffering is appointed for every believer. Tribulation, trials, and suffering come with the territory of belonging to Jesus. But sadly, you know, uh, the biblical doctrine of suffering is not well taught. And therefore, it's not well known among many Christians today, and thus it's not understood for what it is. There's a deficiency. So what an ugly surprise for them when they fall into it. As Paul was returning to Antioch from his uh, missionary journey, uh, he encouraged all the churches on the way back, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. So informing believers about their divine appointment with suffering was a regular part of Paul's teaching. Has it been a regular part of your upbringing and the faith? <laughs> yeah. In fact, Jesus... You know, he introduced Paul himself uh, into the faith through suffering as a precursor 
to the life of suffering that awaited him. Within days of Paul's conversion to Christ, Jesus said, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 9.16. Wow, the Christian life that Jesus had in store for Paul was a life of suffering. Did he suffer? My goodness, he suffered. He couldn't help being the oracle of God, could he? <laughs> Got him in trouble everywhere he went. But, you know, as we looked last Sunday at Philippians 3, Paul said he desired to suffer for Jesus. He said he wanted to be united to his sufferings. And he wanted to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And then before that, in the book of Acts, um, you remember the apostles were beaten because they wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. And it says that they left from the high council uh, elated, excited that they had been counted worthy to suffer. I think that they could leave with that attitude because the apostles understood suffering. If they had not, they would have felt like they were really mistreated, wouldn't they? Feel sorry for themselves. But because of all of Jesus' instruction, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. In this world, you will have tribulation. He prepared them for it. So suffering is part and parcel with Christianity. You need to be aware of it. You need to be prepared for it. Jesus often made people aware of it. Okay? During his earthly ministry, people would often show interest in following him, and he would warn them about the cost of being his disciple. I think today we like to don't tell them about the suffering. Let's, let's get them in the door first, and then we'll get them with it. No, Jesus was like totally transparent right up front. He talked about sin and repentance and judgment to come. He talked about suffering for him. He laid it all out there. Yeah, made people aware of it. He would say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, Mark 8.20. Again, he said to a man who wanted to follow him, but wanted to wait until his father died first. To which Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Mark 8, 21 through 22. To the first man, Jesus was saying, you can follow me, but understand it's not going to be easy or pleasant. Sacrifice is required. It will cost you something. You'll suffer. You sure you want to do this? You ever said that to somebody that's considering Christ? Well, hold on a second. Do you understand what's at stake here? You'll have to give up everything. You'll have to surrender your will to the will of another. It can cost you a lot. Maybe, maybe you should take some time to think about this. That's what Jesus was doing. Again, he, the second man, he was saying, if you want to follow me, you should do it now while your father is alive whether you have his approval or not. And following me may cost you your family, but if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to do it under opposition. How much easier it would be to walk in the faith if all of our family members approved. It may cost you your family, but the right thing to do, the best thing to do is to follow Jesus. Jesus was demanding that they count the cost, give it some thought, understand what you're getting yourself into, 
so that you will be ready for suffering and so that you won't bail at the first sight of it. It won't push you away, it will draw you close. And finally, Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. It's one of my favorite things about Christianity. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Nothing says suffering like carrying one's cross daily. The cross is literally the place from which excruciating pain and suffering originate. That's what the word excruciating means, the kind of suffering that comes out of the cross. And Jesus is saying, I want you to take it up and I want you to follow me daily. Wow. Nothing says count the cost like just know that if you follow me, great suffering will be required. If anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they first have to deny themselves and they have to take up their cross daily. Man, suffering is necessary. Oh, the reward is eternal and beyond comprehension, but it may come to you giving the ultimate sacrifice. You know, following Jesus, truly following Jesus will gain you everything, but not before it potentially costs you everything. And it has for many people in the past. I was going to share Ignatius' testimony, but I don't, it's too much story that I want to share about it. But a man that looked persecution, suffering in the face, he just did it with such class. Was chained and dragged from Antioch to Smyrna to Troas along the Ignatian Way and then to Rome and then they fed him to the lions. And he did it with such class, such a great story, such a great testimony. It may cost you everything. I think if more people understood these facts about the Christian faith, we would probably have more missionaries in third world countries and more people serving in the most depraved places of society. We would see more people living a life of sacrifice rather than the American dream. Now, I want to qualify that statement. It's not sinful to live in a society with less suffering. You know, many of the things that America enjoys in that regard are due to the influence of Christianity. It really is. You look at the world prior to the coming of Christ, it's a dark, dark world, even in Israel. Okay? The world needed, needed Christ, needs him. The problem about all of those things is when we take him for granted and we're spoiled rotten by them and then become worthless pertaining to the things of God, the kingdom of God, and then the plight of humanity. I think it's important to understand that a cush life of entitlement commends no one to a life of suffering and sacrifice but makes it more difficult to embrace the sufferings that are appointed for us by God. We can idolize comfort, can't we? And then it gets in the way of the things of God. It makes us less like Christ, who chose suffering with and for humanity for their own sake. Isaiah said of Christ that he was despised rejected by men, mind you, this is all something he volunteered for. 
despised, rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And for the transgressions of my people, he was punished. Isaiah 53, 3 through 8. Jesus was a man of sorrow, stricken with our troubles. He was God's servant, appointed for suffering. To suffer then is to be like Jesus. It's not pleasant, but it's essential. So if you're currently suffering or suffering because of someone else's suffering, I want to say to you what Peter said to his audience. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. And James said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Did you catch that last part? Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. James 1, 2 through 4. The normal Christian life is a life of suffering. The normal Christian life. And so with that as our foundation, let's get into the exposition of verse 5. You ready? The author began in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, by telling his audience that they have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to them as sons. And then he quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 about the Lord's chastening. Now, when we come to a passage like this, our minds immediately skip over the word exhortation to focus on the word chastening because we have an aversion to correction, to discipline, and to training. Nothing, com nothing positive comes to mind when we think of chastening. Uh, when I was uh, doing this passage, I, I said, hey, Roger, what comes to mind when, when I, I say chastening? And I could feel the breath come out of him a little bit, and then he, and he began to describe all these negative things. Nothing positive comes to mind. But because we're responsible students of the word, we're going to consider the word exhortation first. It comes first. An exhortation is a word of encouragement. It's a, it's a word of comfort. The word means to come to someone's aid, to come alongside them, to help them in whatever way is needed. So in the context, these believers are being persecuted because of the faith. So he's coming alongside them with this encouragement. So these passages from Proverbs are not addressing the punishment of the believer for any wrongdoing. The author means to encourage his audience as sons and daughters of God. And so what these believers have forgotten in the midst of their suffering was something 
that would encourage and benefit them. Forgotten. So let's consider now the word chastening. The, the Greek word is paideia, paideia, and it never carries with it the idea of punishment, punishment. Paul uses the same word in Ephesians 6, 4 in regard to child training. He says, and you fathers, do not provoke your, provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, paideia, and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4, uh, it, it's by means of paideia, uh, chastening, training, instruction. Uh, most commonly, the word in Greek culture was used as education. Education. It's by paideia that our children are brought up in the faith of Christ. It's actually the word admonition that can carry a negative kind of connotation to it, not the word paideia. Okay. Paul uses the word paideia again with respect to the instructive nature of God's word, saying all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, paideia, in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. So notice the great benefit here of the chastening nature of God's word. The man of God may be complete, and thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the paideia, the instruction of God's word. In order to chasten the believer to a place of perfection, maturity, God uses his word. But in our context this morning, paideia also comes in the form of persecution or suffering in general. Okay? So chastening in verse five is a good thing. Now it's not the suffering itself that is good, it's not the pain we experience, it's the chastening effect that comes from suffering that is ultimately beneficial. And therefore, the author says we should not despise it. We should not despise it. When suffering comes our way, Scripture says do not despise it. Okay? There are things that we can despise, but not the chastening. We can despise the cruelty, the pain, the loss, injustice, the shame of suffering. Didn't Jesus do that when it came to the cross? Yeah, verse four. But we should never despise the chastening benefits that suffering has for perfecting the saint. Anything that makes us more like Jesus should be welcomed, even if it hurts. James says that we should count it all joy, and Paul says that we should be thankful for it, Ephesians 5.20. And that's coming from two men that suffered greatly for the faith. Yeah. James was killed, he was murdered in Jerusalem, and of course Paul was beheaded. Yeah. Now in the first half of the verse, the author has in mind the persecution of the Hebrew Christians. Uh, they were suffering for their association with Christ. William Lane, uh, not William Lane Craig, but William L. Lane, says in this context, Paideia signifies the suffering that may, have to, do, that may be, have to be endured because of fidelity to God. This is, it hurts when you're faithful to God. That's what he's saying. Being mistreated for loyalty, not because of disobedience on their part. The other half of verse five says, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. How many guys like to be rebuked? 
Yeah. A rebuke comes when we step out of line with God's will. It's, it's a reprimand. And often when God reprimands us, he does it through our circumstances. Our circumstances. Unpleasant ones. Yeah. When David was in sin, uh, there was a period where he made no confession to the Lord. In fact, when it came to his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, it was about a year before there was any communication with God and David. And David was withholding confession from the Lord. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That suffering was brought on directly by the Lord. His hand was heavy upon him. He says, my bones ached within me. My vitality was like the drought of summer. Psalm 32, three through four. Why would God do that to David? He's so mean. No, he was doing everything he could to recover David, to restore David, to bring him to repentance, reconciliation with himself. And then of course later on in Psalm 51, David talks about, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He lost all that. God, God robbed him of his sleep, of pleasure, of comfort, of all those things, just so that he could steer David back to himself. You know, if you're a child of God living in sin, brace yourself. If you belong to him, he's gonna recover you. And if you're not compliant, it will be painful. Ask David, okay? And these circumstances should be received humbly, appreciatively without getting discouraged, as the author's telling these guys, just simply because God is trying to bring you back into harmony, fellowship with himself. In reflection of God's forgiveness and restoration, David said, oh, how happy is the man whom the Lord does not hold his sin against him, Psalm 32, 2. He talks about God forgiving him, restoring him, bringing him back into fellowship with himself, and he says, oh, how happy. The Hebrew word, they translate it blessed, but it literally means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. The positive results of repentance and restoration. This is suffering, but it's good. It's for the perfecting of the saint. Perfecting of the saint. So if the believer is an unrepentant sin, he will be reprimanded. So, wherever your life, my life, wherever it's short of being like Christ's, and it's not an issue of sin, God will allow suffering to come into your life so that he can shape you through it. The perfecting of the saint is his greatest intention for you. He has predestined you, right, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the best way to do that for people like us is suffering. And then if you have some unrepentant sin in your life, okay, God will bring the suffering directly to you because he loves you. How many guys directly bring suffering to your children when they're in opposition to your will and rebellious? You're so, you're so mean. 
But you do it because you, you want to set them on the right course and you want to bring them back into fellowship with yourself. You know where you learn that? You're created in the image of God. Okay? It's all good. Suffering is good for us. Embrace it. Be thankful for it. Okay? And try to figure out what God's trying to accomplish in your life through it. Okay? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Uh, we'll have more fun with verse 6 and 7 and 8, 9 and 10. Perfecting the saint uh, is not always fun, but it's so good. And when it's all over with, you get to look back and say, that was good, and I so appreciate it now. So, let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, help us to receive suffering as an exhortation. That, Lord, you know where we're at. You know where we need to be. You know of the sin in our lives and you, in your exhortation, you come alongside of us. And it can be painful, but it's good. So Lord, help us not to think that we're above suffering. Help us not to think that we're uh, not deserving of it or needing it, or we do. And Lord, you have the right to purge us as you please. You have the right to conform us into your image. And Lord, deep down, none of us want to stop that. We want to participate. So I pray that you'd help us to understand better and that, Lord, through the process of time and understanding that we would be like Paul and the apostles who would want to be identified to have union, Lord, fellowship with your suffering. As Paul said, so I might attain to the resurrection. But help us to just trust your love and your wisdom in this life that we endure. Knowing that we will, as Daniel says, shine forth in the end. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, love you guys. Lord bless you.